Good morning. Good morning. Boy, there seem to be a whole lot of people milling around, and when you sit down, you become fewer. How do you do that? <laughs> Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together that we may, we may learn more from your word, that we can go deeper into it, that we can become more like the, the Christians you want us to be. Yes. Lord, so open our hearts, let us hear, and then, Lord, let us rejoice and praise, and let it be sweet sounds to your ears. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship our Lord. Hey, did you ever have an experience where you felt like the angel of the Lord was with you because you have no other explanation? Rescuing angels. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. During World War II, Eddie Rickenbacker, uh, he was a captain. His crew, um, they ran out of fuel in their plane, and they had to ditch their B-17 uh, B uh, plane in the Pacific. For weeks, nothing was heard of him. And across the world and across the country, thousands of people were praying for him. Then he returned, and in an article, he had told of what had happened. At this part, I would hesitate to tell, except there were six excuse me, six witnesses who saw me and was a, a testament of what had happened. A gull out of nowhere lighted on his head, and with his hand he was gently able to catch the pigeon, and he killed it, and he divided it equally between the seven or six people that were with him. They ate every bit, even the little bones. Nothing ever tasted so good. This was a gull that saved them from starvation. Years later, Billy Graham asked him to tell the story personally because it was through this experience that he came to know Christ. I have no explanation except that God sent one of his angels to rescue us. We may never see them, but God sends his angels to surround and to protect us, including you. The hope for today, can you think of a time when you were spared from potential harm or a situation that turned out better than expected? One day we will look back and see the evidence of God's protective hand on our lives. Oh, 
love that driver's license there. You may, you may not be looking at it because you might be looking at the screen, but scripture today comes from Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hord, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Eden. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained, there is nothing to eat out here or drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray <clears throat> that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of the poisonous snakes and attach it to your pole. All who, were bitten, all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to the pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Say the Lord's Prayer together with us. Just listen to the words as you say them. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Testament reading today comes from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their, for their actions were evil. All who, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that what they are doing is what God wants. O oh God of the light, bright morning, come, come shine through me, I pray. O oh Lord of the pastel-painted skies, speak afresh of my soul today. 
O King of the sweetest bird song, singing my heart anew. O Master of wild winds blowing, refresh my mind through you. O Savor of the fresh fragrant air, fill me with your grace. O Father of this wondrous world, today I seek your face. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the gifts we give today, we give freely. We know all belongs to you. But you know, we know that it comes back, that, we, that when, we, when we are told to return some so that others may come to know you, Lord, let us be a vessel for that. Let us, let us take and be able to teach and share and learn what you have taught us through your son. So, Lord, the gifts we give today, please bless that they may be used for that purpose. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, can you hear me okay? Coming through now? All right. Uh, just so happens that um, the... New Testament reading is what I'm going to share on this morning. So, uh, so let's pray. Father, we do ask in Jesus' name that you'll speak to each and every one of us. I pray for the words to speak, Lord, um, and I pray for ears to hear. We thank you for your word. Um, Lord, in Psalm 119, it says uh, um, we are to put our eyes upon you and, uh, and we just lift our eyes and our lips and our gaze upon you, Lord. Um, and you've said, Lord, uh, I will hide his word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And so we ask this morning that you'll help us to hide these words deep down into our hearts and so that we can walk in obedience and righteousness and integrity before you. I just pray for the leading of your Holy Spirit as we share this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, yeah, this morning we want to talk um, on exactly what was shared in, uh, in the New Testament reading. John 3, 16, 18, I'll read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Um, I have never, in 24 years of preaching, I have never preached on this verse. <laughs> Isn't that something? I, uh, I just... <clears throat> I, and part of it is that I, I, I like to preach on verses that maybe we haven't considered a lot. And this one has been, you know, shared on so many times that I've always avoided it because I say, well, you know, everybody knows that one. Um, but I want to share on it this morning. I just felt like this is where God wanted me to go. And actually, it's part of a series. We want to do four, uh, four sermons today on, um, so I call it God So Loved the World. And then Mike Petrolak is going to be with us next week. And the theme of the whole series is um, from, the, uh, from the cross to glory. 
and it's the cross and the glory. So uh, we're going to concentrate on the cross for two weeks, and then we'll talk about the glory, and of course ending up with, uh, with uh, on Easter with resurrection. And so I want to start, though, at the end of the of these verses, that is verse 18, 17 and 18. For God did not send his world into the, in, son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now I think this is really important that, you know, that we as believers get this. And, and our culture, you know, says, you know, everybody's okay. And they get corrupted by, uh, you know, by, the, by society. But as Christians, we believe that we start out wrong. There's something wrong to start with. Um, Romans 3.22, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there's no person born on this earth since Adam and Eve who is born in righteousness and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So those who don't believe in Jesus, they are condemned already. God didn't condemn them. They're condemned already because they have not believed. Condemnation came into the world when Adam and Eve sinned. We have no choice but to be born in sin. That's just, that's just scripture. We aren't sinners. I love this, the way you know, this is stated. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. There's something deep down in the heart of man that, that, that causes us to sin. There's a sinful nature in us. And so it's not that we commit things and do things wrong and then we're called sinners. It's that we are sinners and because we are sinners, we do wrong things. So there's something wrong in the mainspring. So we do have the choice, however, to get rid of sin. A secular worldview begins with the supposition that men are not born in sin, and that pretty much dominates what we see in the media and you know, everywhere, everywhere we go. And there were two bases of Adam and Eve's sin. And the first one was that they didn't trust in God's character. And I find, you know, I, I see so many times in the media and movies and all kinds of different places that there is a, uh, there's a depreciation of who God is and his character, that we can't trust in him. You know, he's some kind of meanie and... Um, and so we can't really trust in him. And, of course, Adam and Eve trusted the word of the serpent rather than believing that God really did want the best for them. And that's the whole essence of it, is that, is that Adam and Eve, starting with Eve, said, you know what, the serpent's really got some good ideas here. And, and Eve sinned and then, and then gave the apple or whatever it was to Adam and he sinned as well. But the basis, it's, that is the basis of all unbelief, is that we don't believe that God is good. If God is good, and he has the very best in mind for us, then 
we want to come to him. We, want, we are drawn to him because of his goodness and his love for us. People trust in themselves or in the word of somebody else or in a philosophy or in something, but they don't put their trust in God. But God, out of his existence and character, could not help but be loving, humble, and self-sacrificial. That's who God is. God is, is it is in the, his essence that God is good and eternal and loving and has our best interests in mind. The second thing is, with Adam and Eve, is that they had a predisposition to sin because of their pride. I don't understand the whole process of that and, you know, what comes first and so on. But we do know that there was a pride that came upon Eve and Adam. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, so that the serpent appealed to something in her that said, you can, it can be better than this. I mean, you know, we look at it and we go, you know, what could be better than living in the Garden of Eden? And, but she looked at it and she said, no, there, maybe there's something better than this. She took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And ever since then, man has tried to find something better than God. Didn't they? We did. We thought we could find something better. I think it's part of youth. Is that, you know, I can do better than this. And we can't. And Satan tried to seize power that he didn't possess, as did Eve. But listen to this. Christ gave up power that he did possess. Notice the difference. Satan trying to reach for that which he didn't rightfully own. And Jesus giving up that which he rightfully did own. He took on the nature of a servant, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. He set aside his glory for a season. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but was made in human likeness. And he came down to our level as a human being, born as a little baby, in order to be able to take us to God. And so we can have freedom from condemnation. Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So our, our natural state then is that we are dead in transgressions and sins. And then it says in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. That's an amazing thing. We were dead in transgressions and sin. We were spiritually dead. There was nothing. And then God came along and he, he through his Holy Spirit, he quickened us so that and stirred up something in us out of his mercy and he made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. That is the miracle. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so, therefore, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize you, there is now no condemnation? The enemy tries to come along and say, look what you did. Look at this, look at that. 
Look what kind of person you are, or you were. And, and our response is, Satan, you're a liar. And I, I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it sure was all those things, but not anymore. I'm a new creation. And so the coming of Jesus, one commentator says, divides men, saved and the condemned. His coming gives men the opportunity of salvation and challenges them to a decision. To refuse the good gift is to be judged. So God, Christ, it says, Christ didn't come into the world to judge the world, condemn the world. He came in because men already were judged. They already were condemned. Christ came along and he said, you don't have to stay in that place. Now that's important because God doesn't hate people. He hates I think it's so important in our witness to other people that we help them to understand that God doesn't hate them. God hates the sin, and if they're going to hold on to sin, they are condemned. And if they hang on to sin, they're separated from God and they're under condemnation. The basis of much of modern psychology is that the psychologist can help you feel better and feel good about yourself. Isn't that? I mean, that's basically what, what uh, much of modern psychology is. I'm not against all modern psychology, by the way. I mean, I think there's some really good stuff out there. But the basis is that you, I can help you to feel better about yourself instead of genuinely dealing with sin and guilt. And the problem is we all feel guilty, not because, because we did some wrong things, but because we are guilty. That's the problem. I, I was talking this week to a friend of mine, and he was telling me um, his daughter was, um, you know, facing some tough times and so on, and so she went to a psychologist at the University of Arizona. And, um, and so the psychologist said, well, your problem is that your parents have made you feel guilty with all that Christian stuff. I mean, here's a girl who grew up in church. You know, they're, they're making you feel bad. So what you need to do is to cut off all relationship with your parents. From now on, no, no more relationship with your parents. Well, I'm sure it helped her feel better for a while. But the problem is, what about the guilt? And that's, you know, that's, that's the problem, is that people feel guilty because they are guilty. There is objective guilt. We feel bad about ourselves because we are bad. There's something wrong. This didn't come to make us feel better about ourselves. He came to be the answer for objective guilt. We do not stand before God, and we do stand guilty before God, and he's the bridge between our guilt and freedom. He took our guilt upon himself so that we might be genuinely free from guilt forever. So when we talk to people about a relationship with Christ, we're not trying to help them to feel better. We're trying to help them to realize that they stand guilty before God and that Christ died so that they don't have to feel guilty. We were dead, all of us, in transgressions and sins. 
We don't need to just feel better about ourselves. We need to be better. And the only way that we can be better is to have a new nature, to be regenerated and, and have a genuine relationship with God. People think that God is on trial. We reject them, but God isn't on trial. We are. Let me read a, there's a story that commentator shares, and I really like this. Um, a visitor was being shown around an art gallery. I have a, I think the next, yeah, okay. Shown around an art gallery by one of the attendants. In the gallery, there were certain masterpieces, beyond all price, possessions of eternal beauty and unquestioned genius. At the end of the tour, the visitor said, well, I don't think much of your old pictures. Obviously not much of a, an, art, an, an art appreciant. Uh, the, the attendant answered quietly, sir, I would remind you that these pictures are no longer on trial, but those who look at them are. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? You know, and that's the same way we are about, people are about God. They say, well, God... You know, I've tried you, and I don't think that you're. I don't think that you're what I want. And God said, "Sorry, I'm not on trial here. You are, because you stand guilty already. You're condemned, not me. And all I've done, and all Jesus did, was was to come along and give an answer for sin. Not so that we feel better about ourselves, so that we are." better, so that we have a new nature, so that we can do what Christ has asked us to do. You see, your condemnation and guilt are reality, and we have to do something about it. God's method of salvation is not up for vote. It isn't determined by consensus. My wife will love that. She loves that phrase. (laughs) The truth is not established by consensus. Truth is truth. God gave us truth. God is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's not up for vote. It is not God who condemns men. God only loves them. They condemn themselves because they have not believed. By his reaction to Jesus Christ, a man stands revealed and his soul laid bare. If he regards Christ with love, even with wistful yearning, For him there is hope. But if in Christ he sees nothing attractive, he has already condemned himself. That's what scripture says. He who is sent in love has become to him judgment. So what we're saying is, there is a moral basis behind much unbelief. And the bottom line is that it is is morality that keeps us from belief. Romans 1.8, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In other words, <clears throat> truth is right before them. God, it is plain. If you can look at the world, doesn't matter you know, where you are or who you are, you look at the world and it can either, you can either come away from that saying there has to be a God This world is incredible. Look at all the beautiful things in this world. But there's something wrong with me. Or you can look at it all and say, you know what, that's all just a matter of chance, and I'm just a blob in the universe. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
And part of the problem is that people get involved in sin and therefore they don't believe. And it really is a cycle. They don't believe and then they get involved in more sin. God says he hands them over to sexual immorality and so on, so forth in Romans. Well, in the midst of that, then we find the love of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then 1 John 4, 8 and 9. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. Now, God doesn't just love because, you know, he wants to love. It, God loves because he is love. Uh, it, it is endemic to his nature, God's very nature. If he didn't love, he would be, he, he would, uh, you know, it wouldn't be him. His whole nature is a nature of love for us. And, and, and love in general. I mean, God just is love. That's who he is. And it was all done for us. He wasn't looking for power, but for people whom he could love unconditionally. He doesn't smash men into submission. He yearns over them and woos them into love. That's who God is. That's the kind of God that we serve. And if you go to Hosea, um, and I think these are just beautiful portrayals of God's character. He, uh, Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. And you know, it's, he's just talking about bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt and bringing them into the, bring him toward the promised land. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. And then I love this picture. It was I who taught Ephraim, that is Israel, to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. And so you can just see God as, as, the, you know, as the parent, the father. And the little child is just beginning to walk, and God comes along and scoops up that little child and helps them to walk. Come on, put, just put your foot in front of the other. You know, you've done it, didn't you, with your own children. You, you, you're helping them to walk step by step. That's who God is. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. And then Hosea 11.8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. That's the kind of God that we have. He's a God who loves us. God loves the unlovable and the unlovely. The lonely who have no one else to love them. The man who loves God and the man who never thinks of him. The man who rests in the love of God and the man who spurns it. In other words, God loves everybody. That's who God is. And you know, you, sometimes you get the you get, the, um, you get the message that, you know, the, the God of the Old Testament was kind of a meanie. You know, he, he, he asked the, uh, 
he asked the people of Israel to kill all the men, women, children, and animals and everything in Jericho. Now, what kind of God would do that? That's that, you know, that kind of God, I don't want to serve that kind of God. That's, that's what you get coming from people uh, in this day and age. I don't want to serve that kind of God. But God didn't, and then, and then they look to the New Testament and they say, you know, I've heard young people say this, you know, Jesus I can handle. I, you know, Jesus is great, but that God of the Old Testament, no. Well, wait a minute. When did God change? <laughs> it, isn't God the same in the New Testament as in the Old Testament? Aren't they the same? See, so the, it, the problem is not God. The problem is us. The problem is that we don't really understand God well enough to know that transition old into New Testament. God didn't change because God is in very nature. He's a loving God. So there's something we're not understanding. Not something that God did wrong, but something we're not understanding about God. God's very nature is love. He cannot help but love. Everything he does comes out of his heart of love for the world. He doesn't, if he doesn't love, he isn't true to who he is. And that's true of the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. God's wrath and his nature are one. The problem, you see, is my nature. It's not God's nature. Let me say that again. The problem is my nature, my understanding, something in me, not something in God. We don't understand his love. We can't reconcile his love and his wrath. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't love. Because his nature is to love. And he was acting out of his nature to offer up his son for others. That's why it says, God so loved the world that he gave. So you see, the initiative is God's. <clears throat> One commentator says it this way. Sometimes men present the Christian message in such a way that it sounds as if Jesus did something which changed the attitude of God to men from condemnation to forgiveness. That somehow God would like to condemn everybody and Jesus comes along and he's the good guy. You know, you got the black hat and you got the white hat. And the black hat is God who condemns everybody and is a meanie and has people killed and so on. And then Jesus comes along and he says, oh yeah, I'm going to save everybody. No, it's the same God. Jesus and God are one. There's no, there's no difference between Old Testament and New Testament. It is all God. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God, that God of the Old Testament, loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Next thing we need to realize <coughs> is that the nature of love is to give. And God's love is self-sacrificial. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down... <coughs> his life for his friends. And I, you know, as I think about it, the greatest love that is possible is to, is to, is to sacrifice your own son. I, I, I couldn't think of anything that would be more difficult for me than sacrificing willingly my own son. And that's exactly what God did. Now he did that knowing the, the overall plan and, 
and what he was going to do. But he gave his only son. He gave up his son. And God's love was not just some sentimental feeling. It was a love that cost him when he sent his son to die on the cross. And that son is the one and only son, the Messiah, the son of David, the monogenes in the Greek, the only one of its kind, the unique, the only, the only begotten son. God gave him up on the cross. 2 Samuel 12 and 13, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, this is the, this is the, uh, promise that's given to David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so when Jesus hung on that cross, he was the son of David given up for the sin of the world. And through that, through Jesus then, God established his kingdom forever. Hebrews 9.22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so Jesus became then, as he hung on that cross, he became our Passover lamb. Remember when John first saw Jesus, uh, and Jesus is approaching him, and he says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus did. We're condemned already. Jesus comes along, and Jesus becomes our sacrifice, fulfilling all that Old Testament law. The Old Testament law said that day after day, morning and evening, the priest would go in and offer up sacrifices as a, as an, as a reminder of sin. <coughs> and then John saw Jesus coming, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world forever. One act. Jesus hanging on that cross, Jesus became the answer for sin forever. It's done. It's completed. When he hung on the cross, he said, it's finished. It's done. The plan is finished. God's wrath is appeased, and there is forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. John 3.16, going back to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son, that's the monogenes, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, we already talked about that, but to save the world through him. Excuse me. So how does God then save the world? Through belief in Jesus. <coughs> Wayne Grudem said this of, um, belief in Jesus. He said, conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ. <clears throat> and that belief is a settled conviction. Um, it's not just, yeah, I think that's a good idea, or, um, you know, maybe he might have done that. But it's a settled conviction, a trust that Jesus really did Pay the price for our sins. And it has to be rooted in our inner man. So true saving faith includes then knowledge. We have to have some knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done. That's why we go out and proclaim the word. Because people need to understand that there is a choice. Then it's approval. 
I have to approve of those facts and knowledge that they're true. I assent to it. I say, yeah, that, you know, that really, that really is true. But then thirdly, and this is very important, is trust. Saving faith, trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. So trust is not just a belief in facts, but it's a personal trusting in Christ for salvation and for eternal life. And there's an illustration that, um, <clears throat> that to me really hammers this home. And I wrote this in, because I'd heard it and I'd, I'd seen references to it and so on, and I wrote this um, in my second book, and the friend of mine, Dave Phillips, whom I've talked about before, he's, he lives in Toronto. And so I sent it to Dave, and Dave was, was editing the book, and he said, well, you need to know that's not the real story. Let me give you the real story. So I looked it up, and this is the true story of what happened with this whole thing. Okay, and it's Frenchman Jean-Francois Gavelet, known as Blondin. And he was a tightrope walker and circus performer, and he came 1,500 feet across Niagara Falls in 1859 across the gorge. He repeated the feat eight times in the next decade. On one of his trips with a particularly boisterous crowd, before he went across the canyon, he asked the crowd if he thought he could make it safely to the other side. So he you know, shouted out, you think I can do this? Crowd said, oh yeah, 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 you can do that. I know you can do it. After he made it back safely, he asked the crowd if he thought he could push a wheelbarrow on the tightrope <coughs> across the canyon. Again, this is a true story. They responded with great enthusiasm. Well, <clears throat> took the wheelbarrow, went across, came back to the other side. Again, great applause. And then he said, okay, do you believe that I can take a person across in this wheelbarrow? And they said, again, great applause. Of course you can. And then he said, okay, who will volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it says there was a, the crowd fell silent <laughs> maybe it's him but not me I'm not getting that wheelbarrow <laughs> that's a long way down finally Blondin's agent Harry Colcourt volunteered now Blondin had never actually intended to wheel anybody across the gorge in the wheelbarrow <clears throat> but they returned a few months later and Blondin carried Colcord across the gorge on his shoulders. Now, why, why do we tell that story? Well, that's trust. Trust is not the, 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 the crowd on the, on the banks of the Niagara Falls saying, yeah, yeah, you can do it, I know you can do it. Trust is being willing to get in the wheelbarrow. And that's, that's what it means to have faith in Christ. You're willing to get in the wheelbarrow. You trust in God enough that you say, okay, God, I'll get in the wheelbarrow. Uh, it's a long way down there, you know, and, I, and I don't like falling out of a wheelbarrow when, when I'm, uh, you know, 1,000 feet above the Niagara Falls, but I'm willing to get in that wheelbarrow because I trust in you. I trust your character, and I trust who you are, and I trust your love for me. You see, faith and repentance must go together. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, 
renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake sin and walk in obedience to Christ. It's willing to, being willing to get in the wheelbarrow. <clears throat> James 2.17. In the same way, faith by itself, it is if it is not accompanied by action, that is, getting in the wheelbarrow is dead. It's easy to say, I have faith in something, but it's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow and prove your faith. Someone will say, James says, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I'm willing to get in the wheelbarrow. And then in verse 22, you see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. That is, he got in the wheelbarrow. <clears throat> so, what does salvation mean? Salvation means that we are saved from God's wrath. Again, God is not a meanie, but he hates sin, and if we are going to choose sin and hang on to sin, God says you are condemned already. You already made your choice. So we have to make a choice, and this is really important that people understand this, who don't know Christ, they have to make a choice from a state of condemnation to come to a state of grace. It is not automatic. There is a hell. People are going to hell if they don't put their faith in Christ. Romans 5, 8, 9, 10. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? <clears throat> for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So we have to make a choice to move out of condemnation into the presence of God. And when we talk about salvation, there are three different tenses that are used. <clears throat> let me explain that. But let me first read Romans. We read earlier Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that is Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. So, so there's three tenses, three different concepts when we talk about salvation. <clears throat> there's the past tense, and that is you, we have been saved. It's in the past. That's justification, what we call justification. I become just as if I had never sinned. But then there's the present tense. <clears throat> we are being saved. We are in the process of being saved and becoming more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. <coughs> and then there's the future tense. We will be saved. There's going to come a time when we are going to reign with Christ forever. So justification is the past tense. Man is freed from the just punishment which he deserves <coughs> and is reconciled with God. It's not COVID, it's just uh, allergies, okay? So, 
<coughs> you can relax. And justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. <coughs> it is not earned. It does, excuse me. I know what you're thinking. I didn't. <laughs> she always gives me a, a, a day quill <laughs> before we preach. She didn't give me one today, so. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's her. <laughs> Lord, it's the woman you gave me. <laughs> she gave me an apple. <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> so justification then means we, that we become in God's eyes as if we had never sinned. All our sins are wiped away. Everything that we've done. It's not earned. It's not something that you did <clears throat> even because you believed. It's something that, that God conferred upon you. God drew you to himself and you respond <clears throat> and then you are saved. And it doesn't change your inner life. What happens is, when we are justified, we are in our legal standing, is that of justification, we're right with God. But it doesn't mean that everything's cleaned up on the inside. That's the whole process of sanctification. That's what we do on Sunday morning, <clears throat> most of the time. We are here to help you to get cleaned up on the inside, to live a life which is righteous in God's eyes. That's sanctification. So, we have been saved. We are being saved every day, constantly, as we, as we study God's Word, as we dig into His Word, as we pray, as we, you know, as we spend time with Christ, we are being cleaned up so that we become what we are already legally are. You are justified before God. Now you're being cleaned up so that you become like that on the inside. Philippians 2, 12, 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always bade, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. <clears throat> so God is at work in us. It is God's work to make us like himself, renew us, transform us into the image of Christ. And then the final thing is our glorification. We have been saved, we are being saved, and then there's going to come a time when we reign with Christ, when we have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We, we actually inherit eternal life the moment we believe, but we will see that fleshed out. <clears throat> Someday we're going to reign with Jesus. And that which is we see in shadows now and by faith, we'll see face to face, we'll be face to face with Jesus, and we'll see him as he is. <clears throat> Just as man is destined to die once, it says in Hebrews 9, after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the people. That's the first coming. But he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, one day, and this is what we look forward to, isn't it, as Christians? We know that one day we are going to reign with Christ forever. 
We're, gonna, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to reign with him. It's all going to be done. It's going to be totally finished, this whole plan of salvation, and we're going to reign with Christ. That's what we're looking forward to, that eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see God's life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's been our whole point, is that we are already in condemnation. Christ comes along and Christ says, you can be justified, made pure, be made right, have a right legal standing with me, have your sins forgiven, and inherit a new nature. And then one day, you're going to be part of that great witness who are going to reign with me forever. So you see, our past, present, and future are in God's hands. The past, we're not tied to our old way of life. We don't need to live with regrets. All of that is under the blood. We're set free from our sin. Now let me just pause on that a moment. <clears throat> Sometimes the enemy gets us as believers and says, look at the things that you did. Look at who you were. And he comes along and he points it out and he says, <clears throat> how can you call yourself a Christian? Look at the kind of life you led. Look at what you've done. And our answer is not, well, Lord, you know, I'm try better. I, I, I'll see if I can live a better life. Our answer is, I have been set free by Jesus Christ. There is therefore no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can look that devil in the eye, probably not a good idea, but look, look at that devil and say, get because Jesus paid the price for your sin. It's done. It's over with. You are justified. So let's not live a life of regret. Let's live a life of victory in Christ because Christ has already paid that price. It's done. It's over. It's finished. And you don't have to go back there and try to prove to anybody that, that you were maybe a pretty good person. No, you weren't. You weren't. You were condemned. And you got new life, and now you're living that new life in Jesus Christ. And in the present, we have the power to live a righteous life. There's a song that, uh, that uh, came out, I'm No Longer a Slave to Sin. Do you know that one? Um, beautiful song. I'm No Longer a Slave to Sin. We are no longer a slave to sin. We do not have to sin anymore. Now we will, of course, we're not, because we're not perfect. But we don't have to. We have been set free from sin. It's done. That old nature has been put to death by Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 6, 10. The death he died, he died to sins once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself, reckon on it, dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have been set free. You can, you can live in righteousness. And then, of course, the future is that we will inherit, and we have inherited and we will enjoy and reign with Christ forever. That's who we are. So that's pretty good news, isn't it? <laughs> You've been set free from sin. Christ is at work in you so that you don't sin anymore. And someday we're all going to reign with him. That's the message that God's given you to take out into the world. It's not because of what they've done. It's because of what Christ has done.
you gave your son, that he was the, the cure for our sins. But Lord, we, we have the sinful nature, and only by following his teachings can that be overcome. So Lord, give us that strength. Let us feel your word. Let us become part of it, part of us, that we can, that, and that we can share it with others so that they too can know the joy of being part of your family. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God be with us till we 